If a small flock of cartoon bluebirds didn't help you get dressed this morning, that just means you haven't yet listened to Fine Tuning with Jim Hill and Drew Taylor. No, the black dress slacks, please. Thank you. And now, Jim Hill. Welcome to Fine Tuning with Drew Taylor, your one-stop shop when it comes to animation news and commentary. I'm Jim Hill, and before Drew and I get started here, we're running behind schedule here. We should have had a show out quite a while ago. I had the travel. I was out in Ohio for Dayton, Disneyana. While I was traveling, all of this animation news broke. So let's bring Drew in now. Okay, I'm here. I'm here. So while I'm out in Ohio, the Walt Disney Company deliberately released this news after the financial markets had closed on Friday afternoon. And this is typically what you do when you have bad news that you don't necessarily want to be in the spotlight. And the news was that John Lasseter will not be returning to Pixar Animation Studios or Disney for that matter, that he's settling into a new consulting position do i have that right yeah but he will not have an office at either animation studio anymore which is very surprising given that when they redesigned the animation studio in burbank you walk up those stairs i'm you've been to it since they've redesigned it no you know in fact i oh okay the the last time i was there our friend amy astley they were in the process of moving her office because she was right next to the chute where all of the debris, when they were clearing out the third and fourth <laughs> floor of the building, that all of it would go by her office. So it's like, I need to go someplace else. Yeah, so when you walk up the stairs, you can now sort of walk up the famous Emperor Mickey hat. Mm-hmm. And when you right when you get up the top of the stairs, there's a giant office with all these toys. And that was last year's office. Mm. So it'll be interesting to see. You know, and it was the highlight of every tour. Mm. So it'll be interesting to see how they deal with that now. Supposedly... The plan is to pick a long weekend when there's basically nobody in the building. I guess they were going to try to do it over the July 4th weekend, but it turns July 4th is literally in the middle of the the week. So I guess they've kicked the can to the, the long Labor Day weekend, but it's a coordinated effort that things will basically stay in place till that point. And then over a long weekend when no one's in the building, they're going to send movers in, clear all the stuff off. And then it all gets shipped off to the Lasseter family of uh, vineyards. So, or oh, the okay. Wow, I, I did not know that. Yeah. yeah. So you and I were talking about this off air. And John steps away in November 2017. There's sort of an arbitrary six-month sabbatical. But last month, around the 22nd, there was a piece in the Wall Street Journal that you found particularly interesting. Yeah, it was a piece that floated the idea that he would come back to oversee things at Disney Animation, Pixar. People don't talk about Toon Studio, but he was also overseeing that. Mm -hmm. And he also has a very large role in Walt Disney Imagineering, which explains why we're getting Pixar Pier and Pixar Fest and all this stuff this summer. But from the people that have talked to me about it, that was a piece that actually Disney kind of inserted a balloon test, as Jim likes to say, Mm -hmm. to get people's reaction to that and as both Jim and I know, the reaction was not very good to that uh, idea. One of the concepts of this article was that John would return in a reduced role, that as part of the language there, they were discussing Pete Docter taking on more of a leading role at Pixar, likewise Jennifer Lee 
at Disney feature animation, but there just wasn't a good reaction to that. And they had to know that, given what, mm-hmm. what supposedly came out at the day of listening that was done at the studio back in February. If the Walt Disney Company lets Roseanne Barr go, she did her racist tweet and it was within 12 hours she was gone. They shut down that show and that sort of thing. There really was just no way with that reaction that they were ever going to allow Lasseter back into the building. To do so would have sent completely the wrong message and just would have exposed a, a double standard that Roseanne said racist things where John inappropriate touching or hugging or however you want to go right. you know this was real i still just feel terrible about this we really owe so much to the team he assembled the the work that they did to change cg from this thing that created chrome balls that would you know 30 seconds long of flying through the air to now we have these amazing feature films like incredibles 2 which the first estimates of the opening weekend came through, and it, I guess Disney has to confirm this, but they're saying $181 million for the opening weekend, which you just pointed out was... It's like three-fourths of the domestic gross of the first movie in total. <laughs> I mean, this thing is a juggernaut, and I think it's easily going to clear the $1 billion worldwide. Mark, wouldn't you uh, say that's true? Well, I mean, if, if you, you make the comparison to the, the opening weekend, in fact, here we have a CG superhero movie. Right now, it sits between the seventh and the eighth highest opening weekend for the domestic market. And, and the two films it sits between are Avengers Age of Ultron, which opened with $191 million, and Captain America Civil War at $179 million. So it's playing like a legitimate superhero movie, right? which for me really bodes well for Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse come December of this year. That's true. I didn't even think about that. Yeah. But let's not overlook the other thing that it's kind of breaking over this weekend, and that's the whole issue with the strobe thing. Suddenly, Disney PR finds itself dealing with this viral online thing. I want to say that there's a Jennifer Lewis who posted something, I think, on Instagram talking about the the strobe effect that's used for the screen slayer villain and how it's used multiple times during the film. And this thing gained traction yesterday. And now evidently theaters all over the country, as you come to pick up your tickets, there were signs in the box office, you know, stressing that there is this strobe effect used several times over the course of the movie. And for those who are, are prone to seizures or kind of epilepsy of that sort of thing they need a heads up about this and is veronica lewis anyone like uh, in of prominence or did her tweet just kind of catch on because it, she really goes into detail about how long these strobes are and it blew up i mean there's an article on deadline right now mm-hmm. about just citing her tweets as reason for studios to the studio to put a warning on. yeah to my knowledge she's she's you know just a civilian who got this out there and I have to say, when I was watching the movie and this scene happened, it was like, wow, that's kind of a bold choice given the whole, how many times you go to a Disney theme park and it's just sort of like, the show uses, stro-, you know, the warning signs, the show uses strobes and fo- fog and that sort of thing. If you're sensitive to these issues, please be aware. And so it's like, th- this had to come up as a discussion. Well, what's interesting is that the same day that I saw Incredibles 2 a couple of weeks ago, mm-hmm. I saw Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom that morning, mm-hmm. 
and there are similar strobes in the last sort of uh, third of the movie. And somebody actually had an epileptic seizure, and so I never saw the last ten minutes of the movie because the screening was shut down. I mean, it was crazy. So it is a very real concern, I I feel. And so, I mean, I am glad that there's going to be some kind of warning because I was also very taken by that scene. But it's also, I think, a really cool scene. I mean, you've never really seen anything like that in modern animation where it strobes like that. And I don't know. I thought it was a very cool scene. But, yeah, this is a very real thing. No, I agree. Totally cool scene. But at the same time, it's being on a a roller coaster and it's like, wow, that beam is really low and will take the heads off of tall people. But, but, hey, it's still cool. (laughs) Moving on to we should talk about the other aspect of the Lassiter story. And it's as John is transitioning. and, And, again, the way it was explained is that John will no longer have an office. Based on what my friend was saying, it's like John's not allowed to come back they don't want him on the Burbank lot they don't want him on the Pixar campus which is unfortunate but he will still consult from home this will continue through the end of this year and then he looks forward to new creative challenges the big question is how do you replace a John Lasseter and Kim Masters who's the Hollywood reporter just yesterday filed a story about how Disney's putting together, or Disney and Pixar are putting together what they're calling creative approval teams. So not the brain trust, but something different. Yeah, so this is what Kim's been able to find out so far, that I guess there's going to be a total of seven people at Pixar. One of the women that's been appointed to the team is uh, Domi Shi. She did the, the bow short that's in front of Incredibles 2. And then, let's see, we have a, a Lindsay Collins and a Corey Ray. Uh, Corey was the producer of Monsters University, is that correct? Mm-hmm. Yep. And then the male side of the team is Pete Docter, Lee Unkridge, and Dan Scanlon. And in fact, you have, you have that great piece of info about Dan's new movie for Pixar that... Right, so at D23, they previewed this, what they called the Untitled Suburban Fantasy World film. And I guess there were some copyright approvals put in in Europe that somebody got a hold of and it looks like the movie is called Onward which is a very cool very Pixar movie title but they're they're guessing that Onward is the untitled suburban fantasy movie that they previewed at T23 that I think you and I both thought was really special looking. I totally agree and I have to say I love the title really looking forward to this project. I guess we should also talk quickly about the Disney side of the fence. That evidently is still a work in progress. What is been reported multiple times now is that Jennifer Lee, the co-director of Frozen, she's going to be assuming a new management type role at feature Walt Disney Animation Studios. Also a name that keeps bubbling up is Rich Moore, the uh, director of Wreck-It Ralph, Zootopia, and Ralph Breaks the Internet. So given the size of the Pixar team, we're going to see a few more names here. Yeah, Bird's name is not in there, which is interesting, because you would think that maybe he would want to jump at the chance of doing something more kind of big picture. But yeah, it'll be interesting to see if he sticks around Pixar or what his next move is. But you were saying what's interesting about Corey Ray is that her wife is Darla Anderson, who just left Pixar after winning an Oscar for Coco. Yeah, I mean, literally the week that... Coco took the Oscar for Best Feature Animation. She made her exit from Disney and 
Pixar. This was clearly coordinated because I'm sure you were struck as much as I was that I think it's the same thing. It was news that was broken on a Friday, but it was accompanied by kind words by Ed Catmull, kind words by Bob Iger. And these are, you don't get spontaneous statements from folks like this. When you're coordinating a Friday afternoon exit, that's weeks in the planning. So that was fascinating to see her leave. And the rumors that's been making the round in the industry is that she's either going to Hulu or Netflix and setting up an animation studio there and who may be joining her after he wraps things up at Disney and Pixar is John Lasseter. So going to be interesting to see how that all plays out. And yeah, that's an interesting space to be doing animation in. And, and speaking of interesting places or interesting things that are going in animation, Warner Brothers Animation announced that a new short-form cartoonist-driven Looney Tunes content program. And the way they explain this, it's going to a variety of screens in 2019. So what do you make of that? So they're, they're committing, what, like 1,500 minutes of original content every year spread across platforms? Is that is that the number? Yeah, well, actually, uh, what I've got here, at least for year one, is 1,000 minutes. Okay. Which, by the way, if we're going to do the whole rent 525,600 minutes thing, <laughs> um, this is <laughs> 16 hours and 37.4 minutes of animation. But they're saying it's across multiple platforms, including digital, mobile, and broadcast. I just want to know who the I, I want to know who the creatives are behind it because they say they're going out to original animators and they're going to put their spin on the classic characters and. I just wonder, is there any kind of cohesion to this? Is it because they they cite Tex Avery and Chuck Jones and all these people in the press release? Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, you were looking at how many times they've rebooted Looney Tunes in the last fifteen years, right? And it's a staggering amount. Oh God, yeah. I mean, if you think about the Lunatics Unleashed thing from two thousand five, and which was followed in May of two thousand eleven by the the Looney Tunes show, which as they were launching, that explains it's sort of Seinfeld meets the odd couple. And then, of course, before that, we had things like Space Jam. There were two or three different sequels for that proposed. One was Spy Jam with Jackie Chan, and another one was, if you can believe it, Race Jam with Jeff Gordon. Oh, wow. But from there, we got Looney Tunes back in action with Eric Goldberg handling the animation there. So I'd love to see Eric back in the mix. Yeah, I mean, we're buddies with Eric, but the only time he's ever been defensive is when I said something. I knocked uh, Looney Tunes back in action, and then he said, you know, the animation of those characters was perfect. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I I agree. His animation was brilliant. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, seeing him just do Looney Tunes animation would be great. Are there any, is there anybody else you would like to see kind of handle this? I have to tell you, was just sort of calling around, and, and people flat out admitted that, one of the things that's driving the bus here is Paul Ruddish and, and what he's managed to do with Mickey. The Mickey shorts at this point, they, I want to say there's there's 84 of them, plus wow. the two holiday specials. And in March of this year, they just picked up got picked up for a fifth season. Plus, of course, the Mickey and Minnie Runaway Railway attraction at, for Hollywood Studios that'll be coming online next May. And they tried something similar with Wabbit. I guess that was the giveaway that something was about to happen because in January of this year, a word came down that, you know, that show, which which started back in September of 2015, wasn't getting picked up for a fourth season. So I I guess we should have noticed that. And it entued that, you know, once again, the Looney Tunes are about to get rebooted. But 
I, I was flat out told it's like Warner Brothers is looking what Disney did with Mickey and the Fab Five and all that with these shorts and, and wants in. They are willing to bring a lot of artists in to get their individual takes on the characters. And it's, it's kind of going to be like a bake-off that okay. you'll have all these different takes on the characters. And if you know, there's a really particularly strong response to one artist's take on the characters and that sort of thing, that concept may go to series. But I was also warned, it's like, look, it's a completely different age now. For example, if you look at the Mickey shorts, they're all deliberately kept to three minutes every so often you'll get a six minute long one or, or the holiday special but they're designed to be punchy and fun and play just as well on your television as they do on your iphone and and that really is where a lot of people believe the future of at least this type of animation is so really love that they're going to try to do this want it to succeed but i guess the proof is in the pudding and it's just going to be interesting to see just like you i'd love to hear some names as to who they've invited to the table and who's going to get to pull a tashlin or a, a tex avery and, and put their stamp on on these classic characters yeah it'll be it'll be interesting i wonder too if they'll dip into the kind of uh, adult swim stockpile of creators there too uh-huh. um, because they're all owned by the same company that, now that would be cool that would be cool yeah it brings a whole different sensibility to the table now speaking of reinventing classic characters just in the past week we, we finally saw the trailer for illumination entertainment's the grinch drop and so what did you think of that? I wasn't super crazy about it. I don't know how many Grinch movies we need, but I'm not totally crazy about Illumination's look, but I understand why they look the way that they do, because these are movies that are deliberately kept at a very reasonable price point, mm-hmm. and the profits for all of them are huge, astronomical, no matter, you know how much they make, and then they always surprise people by making so much money. I think, didn't Sing end up outgrossing Moana domestically? I mean, that's insane. That's kind of nuts. I actually reached out to a friend at Universal Pictures in the PR department, and he was telling me, he was almost kind of apologizing for the ad, and this is the teaser trail that's going to be running during the summer out in front of Jurassic Park Fallen World, and an ad that's filled with Christmas imagery is just not going to play well in July and August. Right. That's one of the reasons why they chose the stuff that they chose for this ad. I mean, if, if you you watch the Christmas content, I guess he was saying out of the two-minute-long ad, there's five seconds of Christmas stuff. The rest of it is fairly generic. And said, as we get closer to the, the actual release date in November, we'll see more of the more traditional Grinch stuff you know, come into this and hopefully do a better job. He was making the comparison to sort of do you remember the original Frozen trailers where it was Olaf and Sven, Olaf on the ice, and they were fighting over his nose? Uh, the carrot yes. said, you know, we didn't want to do that. In fact, I guess there, there was some discussion of doing a animation with Max and the Grinch for summer. But it's just sort of like, eh, let's go with stuff from the actual film. Including a moose that likes to eat cream cheese or whatever that, that was at the end of the trailer. I don't know what to tell you, but... On the other hand, what did you think of the trailer that also came out in this past week or so for How to Train Your Dragon Hidden World? Oh, I, well, I, I'm just very interested in seeing how that story is going to play out mm. because I think we're both big fans of that 
franchise, and I hope that they kind of stick the landing. I was a little disappointed with the second movie, considering how they built up Kate Blanchett's character to be this big thing, and then she's not even in the the last half of the movie. So I'm I'm really curious and to see how this is gonna play out. I mean, it looks beautiful, and did we like the new Night Fury or the Light? Fury, uh, as they were calling it. From the folks who work at Universal PR, it was like, this is the teaser right for a movie that won't be out till March of next year. So it's, you know, it's just sort of like they went through everything that was there and the stuff that tested well with people for ads was both Toothless and Hiccup being goofy and the mating dance. And that's really what they cut together. Dean Dubois was over at Annexy this past week and did this whole presentation about how to train your dragon hidden world and showed five sequences from the movie and got this standing O at the end. But again, you know you're playing to a different crowd when you get a big hand. They, I guess they showed off Hiccup's new Night Fury black dragon armor that's evidently made out of scales that he's pulled off of Toothless. And it's just sort of like... I don't see a normal audience. Oh my God, look at the armor, honey. Oh, you, you, I'm so glad we came to the movies. But again, I'm I'd, just like right. you, I really loved the first film. I wasn't quite as in love with film two, but I'm I'm very hopeful in, you know, sort of a, a Cars 3 kind of a way that it'll, it'll come in stronger and be a better cap for the whole thing and right. we'll go from there. And It'll be interesting to see too if they put those in those characters in the new DreamWorks Theater, which we were talking about last week or however long ago we recorded the last episode, but you know, there's that new state-of-the-art theater at, at Universal Hollywood and I wonder if they're going to put them in there and also I was going to ask you not to step on the toes of your many other podcasts, but is Grinchmas this year going to be to this Grinch and not the live action Grinch. Uh, Universal Entertainment has been walking up to this version of, of the Grinch, which if you look at the actual Grinch show that they do for the parks, it's this weird camel thing that uses a lot of the dialogue and the shapes and the, the substance of the 1966 Chuck Jones half hour long version of the Grinch, the animated one, but the Grinch himself really is very heavily influenced by Jim Carrey's take on, on the Grinch, which that was November 2000. So to now have Benedict Cumberbatch, when they brought him on board, they actually pushed the the initial release date for this thing was, was last year, holiday 2017. And when he came in, it's like this really changes the film so they pushed it to holiday 2018 and that meant that a lot of universals carefully planned promotional things like the grinch balloon debuting in last year's macy's thanksgiving day parade as opposed to this year's oh did it did it debut last year yes it did oh wow yeah but you were saying that the geisel estate will only allow animated versions of the yeah. of the stories now, right? That actually came down on the heels of the Mike Myers cat in the hand. I mean, I guess the Grinch thing rubbed Audrey Geisel, uh, Dr. Seuss's widow, the, the wrong way. But the Mike Myers one, particularly in November 2003, was kind of the one that broke the sneeches back. You know, just, you know, just mm-hmm. it's like, oh, we're not doing this anymore. You know, no more live action. You can do animated. So that's how we got... Lorax in March of 2012, and that's how we got Horton in March of 2008. So just to be clear, Drew, in addition to redoing 
the show at the parks. And I guess what, what Universal Entertainment is going to do is that the problem is that the movies, what, it's opening in theaters November 9th. The problem is that Grinchmas and a lot of the holiday programming only opens two weeks later. And there's just not enough time to gauge, will the public embrace this version of the Grinch? And should we now then be changing over to a more Benedict Cumberbatch influence take on the character? Evidently, the plan is to kick that decision down the road for uh, 2019. And they're going to look at digital downloads, Blu-ray, DVD sales, and of course the film's box office. And if it's a significant enough hit, yeah, you will see that show retooled and they'll talk it up about, we've now incorporated chunks and pieces of, of the Illuminations Entertainment version. But one of the other things, there has been a Mount Crumpet coaster that Universal has been trying to get off of, out of development and into actual physical construction. Mm-hmm. for years now and the hope is at universal like especially in the parks and resort side that if this illumination entertainment film is a big enough hit going into holiday 2018 that this project will finally make it off the drawing board and we'll at least see it in florida and perhaps someday out in hollywood so wow anyway we were talking about incredibles 2 at the top of the show and i'd really love to get into a more of a discussion about that pixar release and what you think of it but let's pause here do a quick ad and then we'll pick up in a minute or two okay sounds great and we're back now you got to do the cool thing you did the long lead for I did the long lead for this, and then I came back and did the junket and did TV interviews, mm-hmm. so we could post some of that stuff in the, in the show notes. Okay. You'll particularly enjoy when Catherine Keener started to realize that she could potentially get free admission to Disneyland and started freaking out. It's very <laughs> it's very funny. Okay. But yeah, so I w- I've been on this whole press tour, it feels like, for the last few months, and okay. and so it was good to finally see the, the whole movie. And obviously, again, as we were talking about the box office at the very top of the show, it's done very well out of the gate. It'll be interesting to see what the box office is like next weekend, because of course, that's Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom, which I guess at this point is threatening to blot out the sun, box yeah. office-wise. So, be interesting to see what the fall-off in tickets are. But, but Alright, so... Worthy sequel to Incredibles? So what you? I think so. I think I liked it more than than you did. I thought it was it was worth the fourteen year wait. Mm-hmm. I loved the way it was designed. I think we can both appreciate like how it looked, how the characters looked. I thought that it was just an amazing kind of accomplishment from Bird. A great comeback from Tomorrowland, which I enjoyed but was not very uh, widely appreciated. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I thought it was just a. a a blast. Uh, what were your thoughts, Jim? And be honest with us. Pixar is the home of the truly great sequel. I mean, you know, one would argue that Toy Story 3 for me, you know, I mean, I, in fact, I, I went to the Toy Story 3 kind of pissed off because I so enjoyed Toy Story 2 and Toy Story 1. I felt like, oh God, they're going back to the well and they're going to screw this up. And the fact that it was that strong and and played so beautifully. In fact, there's a part of me right now that who, you know, been hearing all of the issues with Toy Story 4 and how they've, they've junked so much of the script and have started over. And it's like, oh, don't screw this up. Yeah. So the thing with Incredibles is it took 
so long, again, 14 years to get here. And, and in a weird sort of way to pick up right where the first film left off with the Underminer. And I mean, again, I don't want to quibble, but were you surprised that given what a classic constructionist Brad Bird is, that we didn't circle back on the Underminer? Yeah, that was, that was interesting that he never played any kind of role. And I guess he let slip during one of my interviews mm. with him that the original conceit of the movie and the reason that I got greenlit at, mm. at Pixar had to do with this villain plot that was not used at all. Mm. John Walker let it slip that it involved AI mm-hmm. and buildings that came to life and all of this craziness that was not in the movie. Mm. So I wonder if in that version or any of the other versions that they were working on that the Underminer actually came back and, and played a role. I think what's interesting is that he said uh, on one of these press days that there's like a cold open to the movie Mm -hmm. and that animation and and a couple of scenes before directly mirror the first movie so that you can go from watching the first movie to the second one and have no change in animation style and models or anything until after the title card. Mm -hmm. And then it goes crazy so that you can sort of seamlessly watch one to the other, which I think people did a lot this week, which is kind of interesting. By the way, if you watch the end credits very closely, I guess the last little piece of animation is of the Underminer's escape vehicle racing across the bottom of the screen. So maybe if there's an Incredibles 3, we'll we'll circle back on this. But for example, erasing Tony's memory. So you now have Violet once again struggling in, in high school and trying to reconnect with a boy. I don't know. I mean, that sort of took away from that character. In fact, there was there was a wonderful grace to her she'd earned this confidence she'd earned because of everything she'd gone through in the first movie and to suddenly put her in a position again where it's like oh this boy doesn't remember me and water squirts out my nose and i know it's an animated film i know it's intended for a family audience and big laugh out of the water gag and all that but it just sort of kind of undermined a character that i had really enjoyed from the first film and so much reliance on jack jack Mm-hmm. for key laughs and, and that sort of... I mean, it, Jack-Jack to me is kind of like Paprika. You know, a little goes a long way and the raccoon fight was funny. And in fact, you and I both know that the tag gag for the Disney princess se- sequence and Ralph breaks the internet and <laughs> that's Miko going feral on Vanellope. And it's just sort of like... Do they ever sort of compare to us as like, well, you know, we're doing a whole raccoon thing. Are you going to do a raccoon thing? Because maybe you could go someplace else with, with that tag gag for this thing. Right. Well, that was another thing, too, that broke while we were off was the the Ralph 2 trailer, which teased the princesses, which is great. Yeah. And people don't realize that that actually goes on for another two and three minutes. And there's some amazing reveals about when the princesses all let their hair down and reveal their flaws just gotta go to movies gotta see this thing yeah the outfits alone are gonna move so much uh merchandise it's gonna be it's gonna be crazy very true very true but yes i enjoyed it we talked earlier about the strobe effect you're right that looked cool i had never seen that before in animation but was it a little on the nose for you that okay so now it's helen out in the world having the adventures and now it's bob at home taking care of the kids and just a little too much of the Mr. Mom stuff. Yeah, you know, I guess one of the things I was surprised about is how much sort of emotional depth that stuff with him at home had. At least for me, I thought it was like, okay, so he's strong. We can see him punch a giant robot and all this stuff, Mm -hmm. but 
The harder thing, the thing that really tests his strength is keeping his family together, teaching Dash this new math, which I thought was a great joke, dealing with a moody teenage daughter, figuring out what to do with Jack-Jack. I mean, I thought it was just, it it was nuanced enough, and the animation was just so brilliantly staged that I was afraid it was going to be too Mr. Mom, but I was happy that it was not. That's it. I will give it to you. That that wonderful scene in the living room with Bob and Violet where he basically apologizes for to his daughter. I mean, that, that was wonderful work. Yeah. I'm happy to have an incredible sequel. I've been waiting 14 years. If they want to go back to the well, I'll go. Yeah. But that said, I have to group this with things like Cars 2 and Monsters University where there's wonderful stuff in it, but it's more of a serviceable sequel i always bow down to drew taylor's box office instincts you were the one five minutes before coco's opened you identify that this is a masterpiece this is going to do amazing i looked at it and it's like it's good it's good but you know a masterpiece and now it's the third highest grossing pixar film of all time and an oscar winner and so so you i i believe are much more in tune to what's going on at the box office and or how the public reacts. And obviously, again, you look at these opening weekend grosses where, I mean, that's two and a half times the business that Incredibles 1 did back in November of 2004. That had an opening weekend of 70 million, and we're now looking at, what, 181 million? Well, I mean, if the fact that it cleared Dory's 135 mm-hmm. a few years ago, yeah. so I think it's going to definitely clear the billion dollar mark but it is interesting coming so close after coco i think that the one criticism that is leveled at incredibles 2 that i will kind of get behind is there's not a moment like in the first one where mr incredible thought that his family was dead and that that amazing emotional sequence there's nothing like that in this one Mm. and coco was nothing but just sort of raw emotionality and i wonder if that will hurt it at all or if people just won't care Given what just happened with Solo, I have to admit, I was genuinely concerned about Incredibles 2, figuring that between Deadpool 2 and Avengers Infinity Wars, that this would have sucked the gas out of the superhero tank. And it's like, and that's just not the case. I mean, people wanted to see this movie. People came out. Yeah. I guess I'm kind of a little concerned now about... Ant-Man and the Wasp, July 6th. Well, I'm seeing it this week, so maybe I can pop in on your Marvel show and just add a, add my two cents no, early. No, love that. That's another one I really want to work, really want to succeed because I so enjoyed the first one. You know. All right. Well, anyway, so to sort of double back to what I talked about at the top of the show for, for Dayton, Disneyana, I was there with Bill Farmer, the voice of Goofy, who had some wonderful stories about working He's been the voice of Goofy now. He was first hired over 30 years now. He's been voicing this character. Wow. And he was telling this story, but after he he came on board, they set up the character voice department, and he was so happy that he got Goofy. Now, mind you, he also does Goofy and Pluto, and he also always warns the people that when they're recording for a show, it's like, look, let's save Pluto for the end, because once I start barking, I'm not going to be able to record anything else. It kind of blows up my throat for the, the rest of the day and that sort of thing. But he was telling this great story about Tony Ensemble, who was the gentleman who, after Clarence Nash passed away, who took over voicing Donald Duck. And the thing is that Donald is all from the diaphragm, and, and poor Tony Ensemble 
gave himself a hernia twice doing Donald. Oh my God. <laughs> and so evidently Wayne Allwayne took great delight in this, that, you know, when Tony would come back into the studio after having operations and, and it literally would be clutching his stomach while doing the Donald voice. <laughs> and, you know, Wayne was like, make him do that line again. <laughs> you know, I, I, I want to see this face. But uh, the other folks who were at this event were Mike and Patty Peraza, who probably not familiar to a lot of Disney fans, but trust me, you know these folks work. In fact, Patty has an absolutely fascinating story. She was the the first female animator hired by Walt Disney Studios. In fact, she came out of the CalArts program. She was going to school on the East Coast and the dean of her college out there was like, well, what do you want to do? It's like, well, I'd love to be an animator. And he actually hands her the brochure for CalArts and says, you know, well, they just started a program here. You should go there. But she looks at the prices and it's like, oh, you know, there's no way I can afford that school. And the dean's like, well, what if I contact them and find out if there's, there's financing? So, well, sure. And he calls the school and reached out to Patty and said, they've looked at your portfolio. They've just offered you a full scholarship to CalArts. And so she was told she goes out to the school and she eventually finds out that not only has she been given a full scholarship, but it's being paid for by the Disney family. Wow. But wait, it gets better. Okay, so it's the end of her freshman year and they do a showcase for every year at CalArts you need to do a film. And so, you know, they show her film in the showcase and this this tiny little woman comes up to her at the reception afterwards and said, you know, I so enjoyed your film and Patty's talking with her. And it's, well, what did you do? You said, well, you know, a long, long time ago, I, I worked at the studio and I was in the ink and paint department. In fact, it, it really makes me happy that, you know, you're, you know, in the animation program because a lot of us girls who worked in ink and paint wanted to be animators and they wouldn't allow us to cross over. So, well, Patty's like, I'm sorry, I didn't get the name. What was your name? Oh, I'm Lillian Deer. Wow. Guys go, what? It's like, this is Lillian Disney. And so at the end of the reception, she goes up to her teacher, who is Jack Hanna, the famous animator of all those great Donald Duck shorts. And she goes, Jack, is my scholarship being paid for by Lillian Disney? And Jack, he starts shaking his head yes, while his mouth says, I'm not allowed to tell you that. <laughs> you know, so he honored the agreement with the family. But yeah, he, she said she'd see Lillian all the time at these things. And it was just so thrilled that for Lillian, this was personal, that finally she was, uh, you know, helping women become animators. Which, again, the irony of this past week at Annecy, we, we had Julianne Crummett from the Multicultural Audience Engagement, who was there talking, uh, she was part of the Woman in Animation World Summit, and in fact, Ralph breaks the internet presentation. They didn't have Rich Moore there presenting, but they did have co-head of an, uh, animation, Carrie Littermackey, and uh, the co-head of story, Josie Trinidad. So if you want to put a message in the front window, the fact that John Lasseter is shown the door on Friday and the following week, you have these three women at Annecy representing Disney. I mean, that's a pretty clear message. Yeah, but you you promised us something, Jim. You promised we all want to know. Okay, so here's the thing. Mike and Patty were part of the initial team working on Beauty and the Beast. Now, remember, when Beauty and the Beast first started, it was not a musical. It was this really dark, gothic thing. That was the Pernum version, right? Yeah, the is Pernum. That, yep, yep. Yeah. And they bring all of this test footage from the film. When Beauty and the Beast first came out, all anybody could talk about was, oh, my God, the... 
the ballroom scene and the, the how they use CG in that. And she brings the initial tests where it's it's Andreas Deja. They have this scene where it's the camera actually moves into a room through the rose window and goes through Belle's bedroom and you you actually get to see the computer model of this this cat that Andreas Deja was doing for the film. And so that was cool. But now she then tells this story about Beauty and the Beast at this point is in trouble. Everybody recognizes that this really dark, strange take on the story just is not working, especially since that year we had a Little Mermaid open. People are embracing, you know, all these wonderful songs and the colors, and Disney finally has figured out how to make movies again. And here's Don Hahn and his group working on this dark, dark take on Beauty and the Beast. It's like, oh my God, we are miles down the wrong road. And so they stop production cold, but recognizing that the staff, you can't just have these people sit around, you know, you got to give them something to do. So Disney now says, okay, tell you what, while we're rethinking the project, we're going to have a MOOC, we're going to have a filmmaking contest that, that we were inviting everybody to do a two minute long short film, you know, on their own. And the person who, who delivers the best film gets a thousand dollar prize. And so Mike and Patty are young couple starting out, and it's like, well, that thousand dollars go a long way in our lives. Let's let's see if we can do something. And Patty's the one who's the whole time they've been working on Beauty and the Beast. It's like you look at Mel Shaw's drawings, and there are all these enchanted objects, and it's like that's not the movie we're making. I mean, at this point, Belle has two sisters, just like Cinderella. She has kind of an evil instead of an evil stepmom. She has the her father's sister and an evil aunt and it's just loaded with human characters and and they're trying to sort of shoehorn in some enchanted objects and that's why for example if you've ever seen the concept art from this era there's kind of a flying sedan chair in fact that that's another computer test they brought they show the flying sedan chair but so patty's like look we need enchanted objects we need this thing to have energy and magic and and life and so she actually comes up with this kind of unique concept and she and Mike this make this short little film called Bubble Boogie. The conceit of it is is that if you had a camera inside of your dishwasher as the dishwasher was running and the plates are dancing. And this is 8889 type CG. So right. you know you have circles that still show the kind of rectangular wiring underform and that sort of thing. But they fire up this test and they're watching it. And, and Drew, you would have picked up on it immediately. As I'm sitting this stuff projected on the screen, here are plates bouncing just as they do and be our guest. Not only that, it's the exact same color scheme, you know, that, that very theatrical lighting coming in from the top and the way the plates are pitched to the edge and, and the energy. And the, at one point they have... Just like the, the forks diving into the bowl doing the Esther Williams thing, they have a fork and a spoon doing the exact same thing. Eventually, it cuts away from the CG, and you see it's Mike sitting on the couch with a newspaper, and he reaches around next to him. It's like, honey, have you seen my Walkman? And she opens the dishwasher, and there inside the dishwasher, in addition to all the dishes, is the Walkman. That's what's been playing the, the music. Oh, by the way, and the music was Splish Splash. That's great. Yeah, everybody shows their films. Mike and Patty are the ones who take home the $1,000 prize. But more importantly, John Hahn sees this footage and goes, I'll take that, thank you. Right. And hand <laughs> carries it to evidently make it an Ashman and shows them. And it's like, that's how 
Be Our Guest became Be Our Guest. It was on the back of Splish Splash and this computer test. Wow, that's amazing. You only get to hear this sort of stuff when, you know, ironically enough, you got to go to Ohio because, in fact, that's the other thing I am really hoping that, you know, Bill Farmer comes back and does Dayton Disney and again because his wife, Jen, was telling me about if we you get a couple of drinks in the bill, we can get him to tell the truth about the Goofy movie and how terrible Jeffrey Katzenberg was to do him during that movie. Oh, wow. Evidently that, you know, this was during that period where Jeffrey was shoehorning celebrities into Disney animated features, you know, Demi Moore into A Hunchback of Notre Dame or, you know, Mel Gibson into uh, Pocahontas. And I guess at one point it's just sort of like, you know, can we get a celebrity voice for Goofy? And it's like, uh, no, you, you, Goofy has to sound like Goofy, not right. Zach Galifianakis, you know, so. <laughs> All right. Anyway, so I guess for now, we're, we're finally caught up here and. So you've seen all of, well, no, all but 10 minutes of Fallen Kingdom, right? Yes, yes. It'll be interesting to see what that does against Incredibles 2, but I, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was, had a great kind of vibe, and the last half of the movie is kind of a haunted house mm-hmm. movie set in this old Victorian mansion, so it'll be interesting. But the next time we record, I'll have done the press day for Pixar Pier okay. and ridden the Incredicoaster and all that stuff, so... I'm going to put your feet to the fire and we're finally going to get the first part of your Pixar characters in the park next week. That's our very next show. So, all right, tell you what, then it's a date that's on what? The 23rd. Yeah. I'm going to be there on the 21st and the 22nd. It's opening on the 23rd. So I'll have, uh, I'll have the full rundown of everything you can experience. I was there last week and if they can pull off building everything before this thing has to open, it's going to be, it's going to be something else because there was still a lot of uh, chicken wire and duct tape and stuff yeah, like that. So and that's pretty much the same story out down in Florida with uh, Toy Story <laughs> Land. In fact, they actually had to push off all of the the annual passholder previews or, or special events, the exclusive access to September. Oh, wow. They have cast members in there right now testing it over this weekend, just making sure... You know, they've got their load, unload, safety procedures in place, but they're nowhere near ready. In fact, the fear, they're running crews in there, paint crews, prop crews, that sort of thing. They're doing their damnedest to have that thing ready for its opening, which is exactly one week after uh, Pixar Pier. It's, It's June 30th. Oh, wow. But yeah, we will talk about all that on the next fine tuning and awesome you know for now on behalf of mr taylor here i want to thank you folks for listening and we'll be back much sooner be sure to tune in again for another fine episode of fine tuning with jim hill and drew taylor